The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, and ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good evening, everybody. This is Joe Schuldenrein with another episode of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Every once in a while, we pick up on a topic that has slowly but significantly worked its way through our discipline and is possibly and probably not as well known as many of the other more glamorous elements of our profession. Uh, however, they are nevertheless extremely important, and uh, today's episode is about a subfield called industrial archaeology, and if you have any kind of an imagination, you can imagine, in fact, what that topic would be about, and it is really about the archaeology of industry and warehouses and the industrial revolution, if you will, which began formally in the mid-19th century and obviously has carried on to the point where arguably today, uh, certainly in many parts of North America, industrial archaeology, if not, and, and this is a controversial statement, and, and uh, my guest, I hope, will, will take me on with this, but to some degree, that, archaeo- that, uh, that pr- profession and that means of production, if you will, is starting to fade from the American scene to some degree, and I think one of the issues that is extremely relevant is what is industrial archaeology, where is it going, what does it mean, and how do we look at these developments in our socioeconomic history that have repercussions both in terms of understanding the past and to some degree going forward. My guest today is a very special uh, individual, Dr. Timothy Scarlett. He is an associate professor of anthropology and archaeology in the Industrial Heritage and Archaeology Program at Michigan Technical University. Uh, Tim has uh, had a very, very distinguished career. He has in been involved with public archaeology, a topic that we have discussed on numerous occasions on the program. And as I said, most significantly, he is a leading researcher and developer 
in the world of industrial archaeology and industrial heritage. Uh, thank you very much for appearing on the program, Tim. We're glad to have you on. Oh, good evening, Joe. Thank you for that very kind introduction. Oh, it's 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 well deserved. But let's let's get started with with the topic itself because, uh, mm-hmm. as I said before, I think people can put it together. In other words, they can pretty much imagine what this is about. But mm-hmm. to actually have it stare at you in the face and look at it as a very very significant and viable subfield of archaeology, that's something that I think we need somebody like yourself to reconstruct and develop as a topic. Tell us a little bit about the origins of industrial archaeology and what it means. You bet. Well, it's and it's it's a, a fascinating subfield, and it um, I'm thrilled to be able to do this for a living. You know, as I'm, as I know you are with your work, the um, uh, the, the field itself got started. The, the the discipline or the community of of people working in this part of archaeology. Uh, really back in the 1960s is when it really got rolling, although it has deeper roots. Uh, and it started in, in England uh, in the post-war period as a lot of redevelopment was happening after World War II and the, uh, the lot of uh, that creative destruction of urban renewal and, and um, repairing war damage and, and et cetera. Uh, the, the English people began to really worry about the loss of their, their um, uh, in industrial history and heritage where they saw their, the birth of their empire, the birth of the industrial revolution. Um, and so it parallels a lot of other fields in development like historical archaeology, uh, which you were, you've, you've spoken about a number of times on this program. Uh, where people became concerned in the United States about uh, about presidential homes and about um, uh, uh, railroad railroad stations and things like that, and you started to get archaeological inquiry at sites related to industry. It spread from England into the U.S. and into Germany and into Sweden and uh, and and thence around the world, and is, is practiced all around the world now. I think one of the really interesting issues that I wish you would touch upon, and and again, I have not been in high school or elementary school for a really long time, and, and maybe you haven't either, but one of the things that we learned in social studies classes in the fifth, sixth, and seventh grade was the Industrial Revolution, which, as you indicated, was sort of the cornerstone for the expansion of the British Empire, certainly, but really sort of took its roots in the early to mid-19th century. And then it just took on and, and exploded, and the industrial nations of the world effectively became the centers of power, certainly of Western civilization. Why don't you take us through that and look at it, if you will, or give us some guidance, if you will, on the yeah. archaeological emergence of this kind of a study, because it's a fascinating, fascinating situation, which really when, was a revolution. When you and I were in school, right, that was a while ago. Right. Uh, yeah, yeah, and- yeah. Things, things have changed, <laughs> but there, you know, we, we, we used to have this kind of classic story of the Industrial Revolution where a, kind of a handful, you know, maybe a maybe hundred significant inventors and engineers transformed the world uh, in, in, in coming out of these European contexts. And, uh, and, and that's really, academics have really revised that, that we now understand 
the Industrial Revolution as more of an evolutionary development, right? And it has its roots mm-hmm. that go back all over uh, down the Silk Road and into medieval, uh, 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 the medieval mechanical revolutions and other and lots of deep time. Um, and yet, what's really changing is this. Well, what really changed was that sort of long pace of social and technological change that that um, was more of a of a continual onset of rush of increased activity um, and ultimately though the the harvesting of of power mineral mineral power over over water power the and the development of the steam engine is often seen as the most important uh, factor that set the um, the, uh, the the global industrial machine in motion, um, but it, it is certainly without doubt has transformed the world more significantly, arguably than the Neolithic revolution, which we now also understand as an evolution. Right? It is sure. a um, it is a a, a uh, period of transformation that also, as archaeologists, we help. Uh, we help to investigate because the, especially in the early period, but through into the 20th century, many of the participants who did the actual work in the industrial age were non-literate people, um, or even more than that, even as literate people, they often were from societies that didn't celebrate the written word, and they celebrated instead different kinds of uh, of um, um, spoken traditions and different kinds of embodied learning that um, artisans, for example, will celebrate uh, artisanal skill. So a lot of those aspects, the real details of the the onset of the industrial age, and then its its climax and its its uh, transformation since then. We don't see reflected in written records uh, that the, the material evidence is the key for insight into what was going on. But let's get back to it. Let's get back to the breakout, if you will. I mean, we, yeah. we're, like I said, we, we're talking about um, 1850. We're talking about 1830, maybe, at the outset. So you're looking at an archaeology that is essentially uh, 200 years old. And maybe mm-hmm. less, and we are looking at something that's very dynamic, very vibrant, and mm-hmm. it seems to me that if you're looking, say, at a map of potential sites for industrial archaeology, you probably mm-hmm. could go, say, from five to seven, or just as an example, for one area, let's look at London, for example, to about mm-hmm. Uh, thousands within like 20, 30, 40 years, right? I mean, oh, this yes. is, yeah, yeah. it was an explosion. And mm-hmm. let, you said it was evolutionary, and I believe that, certainly. But in terms of how it affected the scene and how rapidly uh, industrial sites started populating urban areas and, and ultimately exurban and even rural areas, this is mm-hmm. a massive operation. Tell us a little bit about some of the early sites and, and, and how you got into looking at them and, and how an industrial archaeologist actually goes about practicing his craft. Uh, okay, well, in, a, in um, my personal story versus the, uh, the, the story of the, of the field, um, those are, uh, are, are kind of different, but the, in, in the way I would, I would explain that um, um, I have always been interested in 
in work and, and kind of creative work in people making things and uh, and industrial archaeology was one of the subfields when I was a graduate student, uh, even when I was an, an undergraduate in the in the nineteen eighties. Um, industrial archaeology was one of those subfields that was investigating questions, and at that point. Uh, people have been arguing for time. Archaeologists have been arguing about whether industrial archaeology should be a method, a, a way of looking at technological activity or social activity engaged in production, or um, or or uh, whether it should be the study of a time period, this industrial revolution age, the going from the the uh, 18th century forward, or whether it should be a um, uh, 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 perspective, and and in in the way that I've always approached this field, uh, I came to it through study of craft, as as many archaeologists would study pottery making or any other, you know, metal, metal, metallurgy or, or blacksmithing or um, uh, or weaving. Um, and my interest simply carried forward in thinking about that. So you might think in the United States, as an example, that one of the earliest industrial archaeology uh, projects, the, the Saugus Ironworks, uh, iron making here in, in, in um, North America in the 1600s, or uh, the Lowell Textile Mills that are really one of the, the, the foundational uh, locations for American industrial age, um, um, uh, textile mills in Rhode Island, etc. Um, people were working in those areas at that time that Lowell National Historic Park had been founded uh, in the 1980s. There was a bunch of interesting archaeology going on there. Um, um, And as we began, as I began my studies, um, I just kept coming back to those intersections between um, the economic activity and 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 and, uh, and social activities of work and and participating in in making things in the world, and how it fit within social and and religious and and um, and economic context. Um, um, then I moved around the country from uh, studying in in New England and Arizona, and then back to New England, and then back out to Nevada. Um, and I was drawn into a number of different projects looking at industrial activity around North America, particularly in uh, in in mining, in um, hard rock mining, and uh, and in manufactures. Um, and I've had the opportunity to uh, to. Uh, to study those different kinds of industries from mining and logging and uh, and um, uh, and factory work and metallurgy and and uh, smelting uh, uh, etc um, I found that the, the, the there's intense public interest in these sites that is actually surprising that uh, that um, one would not expect the public interest in sites like a textile mill or like a an, an iron foundry to be as intense as an, as if we were having an archaeologist speaking about uh about the Egyptian pyramids or um, or mummies sure. or a, a more traditional archaeological topic uh, but in my experience and I and I think it says a lot about the current position of sort of American and 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 the industrial world generally about our our cultures people are fascinated by uh, by these questions of of uh, work and labor and and um, and uh, making things as as the the real roots of 
the modern world in this sense, of the, the modern economic world, uh, are found during that, that period, that sort of 19th century uh, um, chunk of time. Uh, this is a fascinating discussion that you that you're bringing on because you had mentioned that you started looking at obviously some of the mills in New England and then you had done some work out in Arizona. When I think industrial archaeology, I think after England, I, I think of the American Midwest. That yeah. that's that's where it started, or that's certainly where it picked up momentum. And then there are obviously future ramifications of all of that. What I think is really fascinating, and I'd like to get your early fix on this because we'll have to take a break pretty soon, but how do you find um, people, generations now, who have been involved in manufacturing and uh, whatever it is, mm-hmm. auto parts, uh, mm-hmm. mills, uh, textiles, do you find that uh, artisans or practitioners or industrial specialists who works, for lack of a better word, word on the line, do, do you find that they have any kind of a fascination with the topic? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, and it's really, uh, it, it, th- uh, this gets to a lot of interesting ideas, but the way we think about workers in, in the United States and uh, in that there's still a lot of, a tremendous amount of work that goes on in this country. There's a lot of industry happening in this country. Um, it, what has changed is the obvious geographies of it, the scale of it, the, the, the modes and kinds of work have shifted, but this is still yeah. an industrial country. Um, and we've had, as an example, in my time at, at Michigan Tech and in the, uh, just in a larger uh, sort of social sense, this, this grad program, we've had students uh, go out and doing, doing projects that are ethnographic interviews with industrial workers um, who are still current. You know, we're, we're working at the steel mill until the the uh, day it closed, we had a, a photographer came through our graduate program the, just a few years before I arrived here uh, who did a, a, a works process study at Martin Guitar, at the factory for Martin Guitars, if you have any listeners who are guitar fans. Yes, of course. Interviewing the artisans working in that production facility, photographing their workstations and recording uh, the... the um, uh, the the way their work life was. It's really important for the majority of human history, uh, as, as your your listeners can can um, can consider that the vast majority of people's time was spent at work when they were awake. Uh, people worked twelve hours a day or that's more. True. You know, uh, the vast majority of people on the planet. Uh, that's been their experience. The uh, the eight hours of work, eight hours of sleep, and eight hours for what you will is a modern invention that came about through struggle in, in, in creating work-life balance. Um, and it has a relatively recent history um, um, uh, that one, I think, which people are, are, are um, uh, seeing change now in, in, in the modern world. And we're going to get back and discuss this topic of scheduling and the structure of uh, the American life around the work ethic. After this break, we will be right back with Dr. Tim Scarlett. Don't go anywhere.
The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Why do some people seemingly make the same mistakes when it comes to love and relationships? What is the best way to find love? Make a visit each week to Destination Love. Host Shelley Pumphrey will bring what you need to know to find love. No, it's not about the next fad, dating site tips, scoring the first date, or looking your best. Rather, it's empowerment, knowing that your authentic self works best and the science behind finding love. Destination Love is live Wednesdays at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, on Voice America Variety. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Why? Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. Dr. Timothy Scarlett is a professor of anthropology and archaeology at Michigan Technical University, which is a, has a very unique program in industrial heritage and archaeology. And we have been talking a fair amount in our earliest segment about the emergence of an industrial archaeology, the uh, roots of that archaeology, obviously going back to the Industrial Revolution, and uh, tracking essentially the developments of that revolution, which clearly has an overwhelming impact on the Western world and the world generally as a result of that. And uh, we've talked about that, and we've uh, examined some of the socio- and anthropological elements of uh, societies and uh, developments related to manufacturing and how that has completely altered the uh, the lifestyles and the actual products and production of uh, what made some of the uh, great powers of the West what they are today. But let's get back to the archaeology of it because I think a lot of people out there really want to know, well, what is an archae- uh, industrial archaeological site? How do you look at it? How do you proceed to find one and document one and then extract a lot of information from that type of a site. Uh, Tim, take us through that process. Sure, Joe. Well, it's it's not really alien to any other archaeological practice. If you were at a uh, a Roman city or a an, an ancient tell or a, a, a city in in uh, the rainforest in in Thailand, you you as an archaeologist arriving at a, a site 
or in a, in an in a, in a in an area on a landscape of um, of industrial residues, you start with mapping and figuring out where you are and uh, and and start in ideally in in the archive with uh, maps research. Something we often will do when we when we start a major collaborative project is we spend a year just mapping and and then studying historic maps and trying to reconcile between the maps and the satellite images and the, and the, the map of what we see on the ground um, uh, where we are in within a, 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 a complex of buildings or something something like that uh, just to locate yourself uh, then from that you begin working uh, your investigations to figure out a uh, kind of a structured approach to uh, the way production happened in a particular industry. There, like uh, uh, like the, the the sequence of operations that have to happen in a, in, a, in at least a particular order in a general sense uh, to try and work through what what happened in this foundry. Which, where's the uh, the um, charging deck for that furnace? Where's the Where's the slag going? Where's the waste product? How is the energy generated? Um, and from that out further to the, the networks of labor and where are people coming from? How do they choose to come work at this place? How do people get hired? How do they stay? Where do they go when they leave? Um, um, from those questions moving away from the idea of site itself to landscapes and to networks and to connections like like commodity chains and uh, connecting raw materials through the process of production and then exchange and distribution to consumption and eventual discard. Um, um, all the while, industrial archaeology, like any other kind of archaeology, is really united by its investigation at at the material remains are an equal source of evidence to any other kind of evidence that you might look at, and uh, the 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 landscape itself and the the architecture itself and the artifacts themselves yield information and stories that then get contrasted against documents, uh, against photographs, against oral histories and memories and. Um, in contrasting those different kinds of evidence, you find really interesting things. One of the greatest examples I can give anyone of that from an, a perspective of an, an industrial archaeologist is if you look at the history of invention, for example, traditionally we've told that story as great inventor to great inventor to great inventor, right? Great invention, great invention, great invention. The cotton uh-huh. gin, the, the, um, 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 uh, the, the, the Macintosh computer, right? A great inventor comes up with a great thing. Um, But when you really look at these things as they evolve, what you begin to see is the small incremental changes over time and the social process of people interacting that lead to technology systems being implemented, to um, uh, things evolving and changing. And so we can look at the contrast between a... um, Machine, for example, just to, to take a, again a machine example, a machine as designed um, and 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 say drawn in plans, a machine as built um, as it was installed and operated, and then a machine as it was used over time, uh, and how it was modified and how the users interacted with that machine, um, and it gives us a much more 
democratic and social understanding of the way industrial societies, technologies, cultures evolve over time. Um, um, imagine, if you will, a um, uh, patent drawing. When we look at patent records, they, they say, uh, I, the inventor, have created this great invention that is totally novel and unlike anything that's come before it. And they have to say that because if it's not novel, they can't get a patent, right? But if you look at the detail many times, not always, but many times, uh, as you look at something like the evolution of a machine as it's being used by users in like a textile mill and the, the, the women at the textile machine are finding problems, their hair's getting caught or the, sh- the shuttle's flying off the side or the things are changing, uh, they communicate with the shop floor mechanician and the shop floor mechanician working with the, the um, uh, people at the machine make adjustments to it and then those adjustments uh, lead to other changes and it, then a bunch of those changes get aggregated into a revision of the design of the machine uh, that then gets patented and a new machine built and the process starts all over again. Those kinds of studies are the tension between what gets written, what gets recorded, who does the recording, and then what the material evidence teaches us about that change. If you really look closely at it over time, is is rich and productive and, and, and fascinating way to look at workplaces as they evolve. Well, take us through a project. Think of a project that you've done. And as many of our listeners do know, Projects don't just emerge out of thin air. In most cases, certainly in the contemporary cultural resources environment, uh, projects are done because there is going to be what we call an impact or more specifically an adverse impact on them. And they are considered to have uh, a certain historic potential that needs to be documented. Take us through a um, research design a research mm-hmm. implementation and a mitigation for uh, a project that you're very familiar with so that people understand how it goes on. We, we spent um, uh, the period between 2001 and, and 2008 collaborating with the Scenic Hudson Land Trust in New York City, uh, in the Hudson River Valley, I should say broadly, for the, the land trust, um, helping them with a, with a preserve. They, they had uh, taken on a green space uh, that they intended to improve and, and open to the public. And it turned out that that green space was actually the site of the West Point Foundry, which was a, a really important uh, 19th century munitions plant built after the uh, War of 1812, um, uh, built across from West Point Military Academy, where the Hudson River makes this great S-curve, really defensible location there. Um, was a really good strategic locale um, uh, to to, to a munitions plant. Um, it was a really important place in American industrial history for manufacturing some of the first American uh, locomotive steam engines, so large-scale sugar refining equipment, all kinds of big iron and uh, um, products throughout the 19th century. And it was an important training ground for artisans to, who then went around the, the rest of the United States and the world as, as, um, uh, as uh, skilled foundry personnel. And um, um, in, in looking at that place, this land trust called us as, as an um, environmental organization that was looking to open this site, um, which by a sort of long and remarkable series of, of, of incidents had been preserved intact to the point that, as we discovered in our fieldwork in the 1890s, the last time they 
they had cast a cannon um, uh, in the the um, uh, in in that part of the foundry facility. Uh, the the mold makers who had who had packed the the mold with molding sand. Uh, the, the mold maker stuck his shovel in the pile of of uh, molding sand and walked away, and the shovel was still there when we found it. It's kind of. Mm-hmm. A kind of preservation that is really unusual in industrial facilities because industry tends to consume itself as it grows and changes. But in this case, at that that uh, foundry site, we the, the land trust needed our help to figure out uh, what were they looking at when they walked around and saw these building outlines on the ground. What were they? What was where? Um, uh, what was the story to tell? And um, in particular, they were interested ultimately in, in preserving the historic remains. There, mm-hmm. uh, there wasn't necessarily an adverse effect in the way we would think about that. But they, they just needed help with um, being able to tell that story. And we went through with them over years, working with teams of students in the field, uh, identifying uh, different areas and explaining what they looked like, how they worked. We, we, um, uh, we married the archival work and the archaeological field work and the mapping work and, and, uh, and um, um, brought a rich and full picture to the story. Um, and today now that site is an interpreted uh, public park with a um, uh, uh, open trail system for hiking and a great interpretive program with uh, with um, some web media for for um, um, uh, podcasting uh, a, an audio tour about the factory site. Um, so often our work is we get a phone call, being the only program really in industrial uh, heritage, industrial archaeology in the country at, at the, the working at the level we're working at. We get the, right. the phone will ring and someone will call and say, "I have a grist mill," or "You know, I have this factory," or <laughs> something like that. And I and I'm I I we're not sure exactly what we need to do with it. Um, sometimes those calls are driven by. The need for environmental remediation, as different right. parts of the country are are uh, dealing with uh, deindustrialization and adaptive reuse and things like that, they're dealing with um, all kinds of overlapping regulations about historic preservation and and um, and environmental remediation and economic redevelopment, and they're trying to get all the pieces to line up in that very complicated puzzle. Right. Um, and we can really help with that because of the nature of our expertise um, and the, the training environment that we're providing for students is very different from the kinds of training that a student in a typical anthropology or archaeology program would get. Well, that, that's one of the questions I have. How, what types of courses do have to be taken, say, in your program that might not be uh, used in other programs? Yeah, our, when our master's program... Uh, which is now, by the way, we're 25 or 6 years old. We, we um, have graduated uh, students um, uh, over that time. We've been a small program. Uh, we're at, a, we're at a, um, a small university overall that's uh, uh, an engineering and, and, and scientific school, um, um, but we're not a huge state school. We don't have tens of thousands of students here. We're a small school, so we've developed a scaled program um, and because we're in an interdisciplinary department, a department of social sciences, nobody really understands what we're all supposed to be doing. So we can do what we think is interesting. And as long as other people say what we're doing is interesting, our administrators let us do that. And that's been amazingly liberating. 
Um, uh-huh. We don't we don't get caught up in the difference between geography and anthropology and sociology right. and and whatever. Um, we train our students at the master's level in, in lots of skills, and by training, that's actually not even the best way of saying it. We provide the hands-on learning experiences, and, uh, and, and we, we sort of cultivate with them the ability to do field archaeology, document architectural uh, remains, both standing and, and ruined buildings, as an architectural historian might do. Um, uh, material culture analysis, the way a museum curator or a historian of technology or an archaeologist might approach objects, uh, do ethnography and oral history as a cultural anthropologist or a sociologist uh, might, to do, um, uh, boy, what am I forgetting? Um, 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 well, technical yeah, elements well, like, uh, those for are, example, yeah. GIS mapping, which and is... GIS, was, right, geospatial sciences... Um, we're, we're, we're able to provide these core courses where everybody who leaves here at the master's level has exposure in all those different kinds of things, which out in the professional world is often actually uh, divided. You have different kinds of people doing architecture or archaeology or, um, or um, archival work, um, and our students are able to do all of those things, uh, but specifically tailored to working with industrial sites, collections, communities, and industrial communities are different than many of the kinds of communities that, uh, that people in other kinds of heritage programs are trained in. Yes. Um, um, so we are, we, are, um, we are in this sort of unique situation where we're able to do that, and our graduates have gone on, and they're all over the place, right? Some are archivists, some are archaeologists working in resource management or in agency archaeology. Mm-hmm. Some are in um, uh, urban planning. Some are in museums as curators or educators. Some have gone on to be, uh, get PhDs here or elsewhere at other institutions and become professors. Um, there are there are people in tourism and, and heritage tourism businesses and consulting, um, people working with um, uh, the um, the uh, World Heritage uh, operations uh, it's, and things like that. Um, mm-hmm. uh, they really are all over the place, and it and I and I think that's wonderful. And we will be back with our very special guest, Dr. Tim Scarlett of Michigan Technical University, right after these words. Don't go anywhere. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Voice America presents a new kind of health awareness talk show, the Sharon Kleiner Hour, Health, Environment, and the Power of Water. 
Show host Sharon Kleiner interviews leading scientists to discover how each of us can become proactive in protecting our personal health environment in an increasingly unhealthy world. Every show offers new information that could save your life. The Sharon Kleiner Hour is health from an environmental perspective. Your ultimate source for a personal environmental lifestyle. Listen Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel and Wednesdays at 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. My guest today is uh, Dr. Timothy Scarlett, who is an industrial archaeologist and head of the program at uh, Michigan Technical University. And we've been talking about the very unique elements of industrial archaeology, what a unique uh, subdiscipline it is in our field, the fact that it is tied to a very critical topic, the industrialization of the Western world and how that has ramifications for both the past, understanding the past and projecting the future. And I think uh, one of the ways that we can appreciate how significant industrial archaeology is, uh, is in the fact that the world has changed right now. And, And I think a lot of people, especially people who are tuned into our program and the types of themes that we try to project and and discuss in depth, understand that uh, one of the ramifications of where the world is going is that the human impact on our world, on our landscapes, on our natural systems, has uh, accelerated exponentially over the past 20, 30 years. And that development is probably a direct function of industrialization and the rapid matrix of events and factors that feed into changing the world to the point that the world's structure physically and in every other way is a function of how people have changed their environment. They haven't uh, just had an imprint of it on it. They are now the dominant force in changing landscapes and systems of the climate change argument obviously enters into this. And uh, Tim very rightly pointed out uh, in the break that one of the manifestations of this is that geologists and folks that I do a fair amount of work with have identified what's called the Anthropocene, which is essentially a new epoch in, in, the hum- in, in, uh, in geology that essentially is saying that archaeolo- that not archaeology, but that human 
deposits and deposits and, and um, sedimentation and the accumulation of what we call the stratigraphic record right now is largely dictated by human activities. And it's, it's a magnificent argument. It's one that is now gaining tremendous traction in the academic community as we start to look at the Anthropocene as being a very viable and real way of sorting and classifying archaeological data. So, Tim, I want to throw this at you. Uh, what is the archaeology of the post-industrial world? What are we looking at? And, and, and what, are, what do you see going forward in terms of your field and, and how it really affects not only the study of what we do, but our understanding of the post-industrial world? Yeah, that's, it's such a great topic. We're discussing that a lot here at, at, at lunchtime, you, you can imagine. We're actually, and it's an exciting moment for us because we're also, uh, we, we as, a, as a faculty community and as a, as a community of practice here in our, our learning group in our department and on our campus, we've had a lot of people retire and a lot of new people come in in the last 10 years. So we're really a new group, and after this 25-year history of, uh, of doing what we're doing. We've been growing and adding and thinking about new things. Um, one of the big things we've been thinking about is this question about, uh, about the industrial and the post-industrial world. And, and, and I actually, in my personal sense, I don't like that word post-industrial world because we all still live in an industrial world. Uh, everything you touch is a, is a, the product of the industrial world uh, in your life. Everything you eat, everything you drink. The uh, difference is the scale of those relations as globalization's right. rush has continued. Right. Um, so I'd like to think of them as transformations, and um, again, as as transformations and evolutions. But in that uh, in that that question of scale, we again see the the long history of this you know the our our colleagues as an example in in um uh in in environmental science environmental archaeology have been studying the the global distributions of lead isotopes around the world with the the, the rise and fall of smelting activities in in uh, asia and in in the in the roman world etc right and we mm -hmm. th there's this there's this real strong powerful field of study in archaeology that, that's about the relationship between humans and the environment with that long time view. And industrial archaeology is, is, an, is an amazing opportunity to, to expand in the kind of intellectual work we've been doing to engage with the, the, the questions about uh, the, the, the scale of global capitalism and the scales of, of um, environmental transformation and these questions about um, um, uh, production and, and degradation and, uh, and externalities in, in, in industrial, uh, industrial culture versus the, uh, the real ecological view where uh, nothing ever goes away when it goes out of your smokestack or down your drain, right? That archaeology is a really good tool for approaching and, and really thinking hard and creatively about the intersections between what people do and their policies and their activities and their lived lives, the actions they, they, they take day to day, um, and the, the, the consequences of that in, a, in, the, in the ecological environment, in the, in the ecological systems, in the social systems, et cetera. Um, and so as we've been thinking about that, the Anthropocene and its, and its um, 
uh, and its ecological questions, its its significance is almost overpowering. It's such a, a, a daunting uh, problem and question. But it again, it gets it, it's one of the many things we're evolving into a world where uh, where artificial intelligence and algorithmic computations and robotics are going to make the vast majority of human labor uh, unnecessary. Well, right. but and this is this is really the point, Tim. And and, yeah. and again, you know, I, I we're veering into something that's more, uh, shall we say, epistemological and and possibly sure. geopolitical, yeah. if you will. But I think it's safe to say that America certainly has mm-hmm. basically taken over the pioneering element or had taken over the pioneering element, and I stress had taken over the pioneering. Mm-hmm. Uh, pioneering aspects of industrialization, and I would say it's almost not even arguable anymore that that period is past. Yeah, and that the waves tradition- have moved on. Yes, yes, yeah. that's right. And now and industrialization, and in the strict sense, is probably in an exponential fashion being moved over to, for lack of a better word, uh, third world countries where this type of uh, subsistence and this type of economic base is now mm-hmm. starting to take root and you can make the case, and it's obviously in the headlines, it's a political mm-hmm. issue that's very, very big, uh, we're getting beyond that. And, and, right. and yet there are members and major components of, of, of our socioeconomic structure that are very, very reluctant to let it go. And Absolutely. I think yeah. the type of work that you do casts a tremendous light on where the future is headed and, and, and what we're about to do. I mean, you're seeing it in the, in the headlines every single day. The election right. was all about this sort of thing. And so mm-hmm. I'd like to get your perspective on, on how the world is changing in that sense. And uh, a lot of us, a lot of people are sort of anti-globalistic, but you, you kind of can't ignore the fact that in the, the locus of industrialization has migrated. And uh, how do we deal with that? And how do we look right. at these things, Tim? Well, many, many people would say it has shifted back, right? It yeah. was that, that the rise and then decline of Europe, the rise and then decline of, of American industrial empire was in the grand sweep of human history uh, a, a blip compared to the technological achievements of, uh, in, in ancient China and ancient India and, and in, in historic medieval, right? And, uh, but as, yeah. and as we think about all of that, that, the thing that I think is really... Um, powerful for archaeology and for industrial archaeology in particular is that when we we I agree with Kurt Vonnegut by the way that the study of the past uh, doesn't prepare you for the future outside of um, helping you to be surprised again um, which is funny for an archaeologist to say but Archaeology requires you to struggle with all these different ways of thinking, ecological ways of thinking about the the sort of material science details of of isotopes and and the and nutrients and the, yet the big social and religious questions of of metaphysics and how societies operate and philosophical questions about how do we really know what we know about what we think we know right yeah. and moving as an intellectual as a as a and and by this I mean anyone who thinks about these topics 
by moving between these different domains of knowledge that come to us from, uh, from oral history and from material evidence and looking at patterns of, of um, economic data versus biographic stories of how people have coped in the past with dramatic shifts in, in socio-technical systems or energy generation or uh, these, 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 these revolutionary changes that have happened in, in uh, various time periods. Moving laterally between these domains of knowledge is a source of tremendous creativity and insight. Um, and, and in an even broader sense, it helps people who think dif- different ways, people who, uh, who come out to visit us in the, in the field when we're doing the archaeology of a mining stamp mill. They come out to talk to us, and they're able to find their, the pieces of or their, their own way of looking at and, and finding interest and discovering about the past um, through their own interest in uh, in in mechanics or engineering or labor or or environment and um, they are then able to to engage in discussions about the future as an example of this you know working here in the copper country of Michigan where right. we've had uh, a few, uh, the the really wonderful partnerships with our local national parks and some of the county governments and things like that studying mining in the copper region um, people come out. You wouldn't believe the number of people who come visit us in the field when we're doing our field work. At uh-huh. one point on one project, we had somewhere between sort of one and three percent of the entire four-county area within a two-hour drive each way that came to visit us in the field in three days. Wow. Um, if when that had happened at the if that had happened at the West Point Foundry, we'd have filled Met Stadium and maybe Yankee Stadium at the same time with right. visitors. Right. Um, sure. People are intensely interested in 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 talking about um, these industrial places, our industrial past, and our our evolved industrial future. Um, and they walk with us for hours, um, um, talking with our students about what we've learned and what they think about what their uh, uh, the the experiences are, uh, the landscapes are, and the places are, and their their importance in American history and how they guide us as we move toward the future. Right. And you know how, how far are we down away, rather, from a situation where in Lower Michigan, for example, they'll go to places like Flint or Detroit and say, "Here is where the original uh, automobile manufacturing uh, assembly line was developed, and now it yeah. just will be a museum exclusively. It won't even be a living museum anymore. Mm-hmm. It that mm-hmm. that will be it. I mean, that's all about heritage and all about preservation and about giving a living history to something that once flourished and and had seen its day and gave rise to uh, the developments that were pivotal to the Western de- Western world. And I guess well, you guys and- have to sort of start planning for that. Yeah, and world and worldwide. I know that because of the the intellectual history, we we talk about the Western world um, and its relationship with industrialization. Um, sure. But it's a this is a global thing. And as an example of that, the 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 um, uh, the, the International Committee for the the Industrial Heritage Tiki, and there'll be a link out, out there on the website, uh, is an, is the international body that sort of works with ICOMOS in dealing with industrial monuments, and uh, as they right. as they talk about world monuments like Stonehenge and Angkor Wat, um, and Iron Bridge 
you know the Iron Bridge at Iron Bridge Gorge in England, the first uh, the first iron uh, um, 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 bridge in in the world that um, transformed architecture. Um, when we look at the industrial heritage around the world, there are societies and organizations that are are partners or or national uh, groups that connect with uh, Tiki. Uh, and so you can go to Chile or to China or to Japan or to uh, um, um, Estonia, and you can find there are industrial heritage sites and museums that people care about there as much as they do in Detroit or in um, Philadelphia or in Kentucky's Bourbon District, right? And uh, some of the other conversations that you've had on this show about industrial topics. Um, um, and uh, it's on a that global note, phenomenon and interest. On that note, we're going to have to bring our discussion to an end. It's been a fascinating, fascinating overview of what industrial archaeology is and how it has essentially sown the seeds for understanding future archaeology uh, going forward. I want to thank my guest, uh, Dr. Timothy Scarlett, uh, for a most fascinating discussion and hopefully we'll bring you back and explore other elements of this very enlightening field. Thank you, Tim. Thank you so much, Joe. And until next time, when we bring you another program, have a wonderful week. And do not forget that the past is the key to the future. Don't forget it. Good evening. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow.